You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. Who has read the book of Ecclesiastes? in the Bible. A handful of people, an enthusiastic Matthew in the back, I think it's his favorite book of the Bible. Um, Ecclesiastes is a weird book in the Bible uh, because uh, this teacher, this preacher, uh, most people think it's Solomon, uh, says, I'm going to go on this project, this experiment, to see if I can find meaning and significance and purpose in life outside of any kind of relationship to or like giving thought to God himself. Uh, And he tries all the things. He tries work. He tries the way of pleasure. He tries achievement and philanthropy and experience and nothing satisfies him. He describes this whole project, this all this effort as chasing after the wind, Uh, vanity of vanities or emptiness of emptiness. Uh, he says, it's like chasing after the wind. I can't see where it is, and I can't see where it's going, and if, if I, like, I don't know how I would catch it, and if I did, I don't know what I would do with it. It's this like, just definition of wasting your time. And maybe you've had this experience yourself. right? Maybe you've, uh, you've poured yourself into achievement, or relationships, or hobbies, or like significance, or your GPA, or whatever it is, and you've said, like... At the end of the day, I don't know that this is going to fulfill me, right? Like, it it scratches the itch for a while, but eventually the flavor goes out of it. Or or at best, it just feels fragile, right? If if you're going the way of academic achievement for success and, and fulfillment in life, it feels like you're always just one bad grade or just one incompetent professor away from the whole thing crumbling, Right? If you go the way of approval from other people, you're, you feel like you're just one embarrassing moment away from relational isolation. Right? Or if you go the way of relationships, of romance, of dating, you're just one fight, one bad week away from a breakup. It feels like nothing is able to sustain us, nothing is able to fulfill us. It's all vanity, a chasing after the wind. Well, Genesis 3 tells us why that is. Why nothing in this world, ultimately, is able to satisfy us in a deep and meaningful way. Last week, we looked at the fall. Did I just get turned off or just down a little bit? Okay, cool. Thanks. Thanks, SK. Everybody give SK a hand. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Last week, uh, we looked at the fall, uh, the temptation from Satan that ultimately, ultimately leads to Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Uh, and this week, what we're looking at is the fallout of that. What, what are the consequences that spiral out of this one decision to go against like, life in relation with God and say, I want to determine what's right on my own? Basically, what we'll see is that everything breaks. Follow along with me as I read uh, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6. And I'm going to read actually a little bit further than what you have on your sheet but the font was already small enough, I couldn't quite fit it all on there, so the last little bit, um, you can just listen. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, 
and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. First is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden... He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray, and we'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. As we look at this passage tonight, I pray that you would help us to understand why we are so often unsatisfied with the things of this world, and instead that we would turn and look to you for our hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So our passage tonight talks about what happens immediately after the fall of man, right? Adam and Eve eat of the apple. Adam's right there with her the whole time. Genesis makes that clear. It's not like Eve and the snake are having this private conversation, and then she goes and wakes Adam up from a nap and gives him the apple. Genesis says Adam was right there with her. And God comes, seeking Adam and Eve, even in the midst of their rebellion. He comes to the garden. Where are you? Come, talk to me. Right? And there's this conversation between God and Adam and Eve where it seems like he's inviting them to repentance. But if you notice, there's no sorrow from Adam and Eve. There's no taking of accountability. There's just blame shifting. And so God gives this verdict. You've rebelled, therefore, the rest of the passage. And what we see in this passage is that everything about life, everything about Adam and, Adam and Eve's mission to be imitators of God, cultivators of creation, to do it all in relationship to God, all of that gets frustrated and fractured. Uh, you've got for your outline a, a phrase from a, a song by Leonard Cohen. You probably know him as the guy who wrote the Hallelujah song. 
I heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. It's in the Shrek movies. Um, he wrote another song called Anthem, uh, and the chorus has this line, there is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And what we see in the fall, that everything breaks. Everything gets fractured. There, there's a crack in everything. First, there's a crack in our relationships with people. We see this all over the place in our passage, because the very first thing that Adam and Eve do after they eat, is they hide from one another. Genesis 2, if you remember, ends with this beautiful statement that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Right? Nothing was between them. They had nothing to hide, no fear of the other person. But as soon as sin enters the world, so does shame. So they make these flimsy coverings to hide from one another as best they can. Human relationships now are marked by hiding and by shame. But they're not just marked by that, right? It's not just shame and fear of other people seeing us. Look again at verses 11 and 12. God asked the man, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Adam is willing all of a sudden to deflect guilt and consequences and culpability to Eve. Right? In, in chapter 2, whenever Adam is speaking about Eve, he's singing, right? right? At last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and he's celebrating over her. But here in chapter 3, it's this woman. He's gone from viewing her as, as a gift of God, as she is, as a person, to only considering what she can do for him. Right? In the present moment, what she can do is take blame. Right? If he can deflect blame to Eve, like the only other human being alive, he thinks that's worth it. Human relationships have lost the mutual honoring that was intended for them, and instead they turn towards using other people. And even in the deepest of relationships, the relationship between husband and wife, we now get conflict. Look at verse 16. Sorry, I wish my Bible would lay open, but there's only like this much and it keeps closing. Verse 16, uh, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Even in the deepest of relationships, now we get conflict. Rather than a mutual partnership where Adam and Eve are each using their gifts for the good of the other, Husband and wife are now locked in this battle for control. Rather than together ruling over creation, they will try and rule over one another. This phrase, your desire shall be contrary to, uh, shows up in the very next chapter uh, when God is warning Cain about sin. God says, sin is crouching at at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. So Eve, you will desire to control Adam but he'll do the same to you. And where your ideas of what's right and what the family should do and what each individual should do, where those ideas don't align, you'll each draw a line in the sand and say this is a non-negotiable, right? Mutual self-sacrifice for mutual fulfillment will not come naturally anymore. What will come naturally is conflict. I want to point out that, that God is not saying in this section that this is how things should be. 
right? Sometimes we get readings of Genesis 3 where it's like, here's what God says life should be like this side of the fall. No, God's describing the way that things will be because of their rejection. Genesis 1 and 2 are the way things should be, but Genesis 3 are the consequences of us choosing to live independent of God. Human relationships are now marked by conflict. So we've got human relationships that are cracked. Right? They're marked by shame and hiding. They're marked by the temptation to use others instead of honor them. And they're marked by conflict. And none of this comes as a surprise to you, right? Like Because you're in relationships with people and you experience this all the time, right? Uh, you, you experience that, that sense of, like, I have something to be ashamed of and I need to hide this part of me even from my closest friends. Right? Like, is there anyone who truly, deeply knows you at the core of who you are? If you're lucky, there's maybe one person in your life, right, who knows you like that. But most of us can't bear that kind of, of being known, that kind of scrutiny. And in shame, we hide. We also try and pass blame to one another. Right? It's amazing to me when, when my kids, my oldest two are eight and five, when they fight... And there's like this explosion that happens and we all sit down. I'm like, all right, I want to hear your version and I want to hear your version. It's amazing how both of them are perfectly innocent in their own eyes and the other one's 100% guilty. My five-year-old is an expert at shifting blame, right? This just comes naturally to us now. And we still do it, right? Like a five-year-old's just less subtle about the way that they do it. But valuing people for what they can give you, right? Using people instead of honoring them. Uh, we see this in all kinds of ways. I've told this story before, uh, but when I was in elementary school, like eight, nine, third, fourth grade, something like that, uh, the Sega Genesis came out. You might not have ever heard of the Sega Genesis. Uh, when, I, when I was typing my sermon notes today and I typed the word Sega, it auto-corrected it. Like that's how old this like gaming console is. Uh, but there was this really cool Aladdin game and Sonic the Hedgehog and all this stuff. Uh, it came out, I didn't have one, but a kid in my elementary school did. And we became friends. And to this day, I don't know his name. Because we were friends because he had a Sega Genesis. Right? Like, I used him for his gaming console. And that sucks, right? Like, that, that's kind of a silly example of us using one another. But it can be as serious as what the Avert brothers write about in the song True Sadness. Angela became a target as soon as her beauty was seen by young men who tried to reduce her down to a scene on an X-rated screen. Is she not more than the curve of her hips? Is she not more than the shine on her lips? Does she not dream to sing and to live and to dance down her own path without being torn apart? Does she not have a heart? And everything in between. Right? We use people for attention. We use people for rides. We use people because we can't stand to be lonely or for answers to a test or targets of our humor and on and on and on. And even if we don't do that, we're plagued by the fear that other people are doing that towards us. Right? Like, like aren't you sometimes worried that, like, or, or you, you question, are these people, like, friendly to me only because of what they think they can get from me? And conflict. Do we know any relationships without conflict? No. Right? Here's some free advice. If you fight with someone, especially if you fight with a friend, that doesn't mean that you're not friends. Right? Like, you are going to have conflict with your friends. You are going to have conflict with your spouse. 
that doesn't mean you shouldn't have gotten married, right? Some of you are, are in this place where you're like five, six weeks into college, and you're still chilling with the people that you met at orientation, and you're like, this is great. We are going to be best friends forever. We see eye to eye on everything. And in a few weeks, you're going to have a test in the morning, and you're going to go to bed early, and your roommate's going to come into your room like a rhinoceros at two in the morning, making a racket and waking you up. And you're going to say, I don't believe it. You know that I have a test in the morning. How could you do this? How could you be so inconsiderate? And they're going to reply, it's my room. Like, I'm allowed to come in at 2 in the morning and make a little bit of noise as I'm getting ready for bed. Right? Like, I'm sure some of you have had that exact argument before. Right? That will happen. And part of the beauty of the gospel is that it frees us to, like, work through conflict and still be in relationship with people. But you are going to have conflict with people. It's just a fact of life, this side of the fall. Our relationships with other people are fractured. That's one crack that Genesis 3 talks about. So let's speed up the the pace a little bit. We also see a crack in our purpose, right? Like what God has, has made us for, right? In Genesis 1, 28, God gives Adam and Eve this charge to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. But look at verse... 16 of chapter 3 again. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I don't know if you've ever been in a delivery room before, but it is not a peaceful place. I've been in one three times, and that's plenty for me. Uh, Childbirth is a painful process, but Raising children, like the pain starts before the delivery room, right? Like especially the last trimester, whenever my wife was pregnant, she's just like sore all the time and tired and achy and her feet hurt and like nothing tastes right and she's always a little bit nauseated. And it's painful after the baby is born. There are sleepless nights, there are temper tantrums and potty training, not to mention the like emotional pain of watching your child realize that the world is broken, like, that hurts. That sucks. I mean, just for you, like, take a moment to think about some of the things that you said to your parents when you were 13, right? You caused them some pain, right? Adolescents are jerks, and we were all adolescents at one point. And then they sent you off to college, right? That hurt, and you laughed at your mom as she cried while she drove away, but, like, that's pain, There's still this mandate to fill the earth, but it's cracked. It's laced with pain. There's the same crack in our job to subdue the earth, right? God says, fill the earth and subdue it. Exercise dominion over it, like care for it and cultivate it. Look at verse 18. To the man, he said, thorns and thistles the ground shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Again, God gives this charge to to cultivate the earth, to subdue the earth. But now, this side of the fall, it will produce thorns and thistles, poison ivy and kudzu, mosquitoes and weeds. And our project of subduing the earth will be met with difficulty. And this applies to any work that we're involved in, not just gardening, right? As much as we create and cultivate using our gifts to bring order to the world and to bless other people, we also have to struggle against brokenness and thorns and thistles. Have you ever heard the sentiment that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life? Who's, who's been told that? It's a lie. 
it's garbage. Everybody has to do paperwork, right? Like sometimes work is just futility and it seems pointless and that's part of life after the fall. There's a crack in our work. There's a crack in our relationships and our purpose of filling the earth and subduing it. But the way the rest of the Bible talks about sin, there's a crack in everything. There are cracks in our emotions because sometimes we don't feel like we ought to feel. We get numb to the needs of others, to the, the, the needs of orphans and widows and the poor around us. Or sometimes we don't not feel the right thing, we feel the wrong thing, right? Like we feel delight at the downfall of other people, not when it's like just, but just when we don't like them, right? Our emotions are out of whack. There's a crack in our appetites. God has made a world full of sensation and pleasure and beauty and us with the capacity to see and enjoy it, right? So he's given us good food and the ability to tell stories through movies and, and books and just like with our words, He's given us gifts like the beauty of creation and and sex and music and wine and laughter and more, and there's not one of those things that we haven't turned into a God or that we haven't tried to enjoy out of its bounds or, or in ways and degrees that God has said are not good. There's a crack in our appetites. There's there's a crack in our speech. Before the fall, we see speech used in beautiful ways, creating and naming and celebrating. But after the fall, Our tongues run wild. Read James 3, 5 through 10 sometime if you want an example of just the conflict that exists in our mouths. Our bodies are affected by the fall, disability, aging, cancer, broken bones, chronic illness, other physical handicaps. Our minds are affected by the fall, everything from dementia to the very common experience of, I ought to do this. Let me scroll on my phone for 20 more minutes. There's no part of us that hasn't been touched by the fall. And that's because fundamentally what was broken in the fall was our relationship with God himself. Right? None of this was meant to be done outside of him. Our work of filling the earth and subduing it was to be filling it with reflections of him and caring for it in relation with him. God is the one who makes and shapes and sustains our bodies and our minds and our emotions. And so, of course, they're out of order when they're ripped away from him. He's the one who makes beauty and gives us good gifts like marriage and friendship because they reflect our relationship with him. So once they're untethered from him, how could they not go awry? Everything breaks because this one thing has broken. Right? Our relationship with God has fractured, then the splinters go into everything else. And Adam and Eve, we are cast out of the garden, which God intended to be a mutual dwelling place for him and his people, and now he says, you have to leave. You can't stay here anymore. And we cannot get back in. The angel stands guard. The sword bars the way. The way is shut, and nothing we can do can carve a way back into Eden. This is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin 
and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no way for us to get back into the garden. And and the way Paul talks about it, it seems like we're not even trying. And yet, we still look like him. right? We're still bearing the image of God. We're still called to cultivate and create and, and imitate. The image of God has been clouded and obscured, but it's still there. Our calling has been frustrated, but it still drives us. I mean, how else do you explain this, like, millennia-long human project to make something of the world, right? Like, we've been around for a long time, and we keep making new things and creating new things and trying to bring order to the world in new ways. How else do you explain our desire to be better, to be different? This is what it means to be human, torn between the memory of who we were made to be and the sin that plagues us at every turn. And that's why nothing satisfies, right? That's why no relationship is going to complete you. No trip or experience is going to fulfill you. No friend group is going to finally be uncomplicated. No church is going to be without sin. And no campus ministry, even RUF, is going to be perfect. There's a crack in everything. And I think that's a good thing, right? The rest of Leonard Cohen's phrase in the chorus of Anthem, there's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. It is God's mercy to us that the things of this world don't satisfy outside of relation to him. Because if they did, we wouldn't feel this need, we wouldn't feel this press to look up and see where the light is coming from. But because there are cracks in everything, we we know that we're made for relationships. And we know that we're made to feel strongly at times. We just can't figure out how to do it right. And we know we're made to appreciate beauty, but, but we always tend to like, corrupt it or overuse it, and it loses its taste. But all of those cracks cause us to look a little bit further, to like, look behind the thing to see where the light is coming from. All over Genesis 3, there are signs of God's mercy that we look for when we realize that the things of this earth don't satisfy We see God's mercy in in his provision for them. I said earlier that the first thing that Adam and Eve do is they make these like flimsy loincloths for themselves out of fig leaves. I don't know if you've ever tried to make clothes out of leaves, but what happens to leaves when you cut them off of a tree is they pretty quickly turn brown and then crumble away. But what does God do at the end of this passage? In verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed clothed them. It's hard to say. Um, We try and make for ourselves loincloths of leaves. God gives us like clothes, full clothes, garments that that are durable, that are going to endure, that will protect Adam and Eve as they head out of the garden. We see God's mercy in the fact that even though the serpent is cursed and even though the ground is cursed, Adam and Eve are not cursed. Right? Work becomes futile and childbearing becomes painful, but they are not cursed. The serpent is cursed, the ground is cursed, but they are not. In fact, God makes promises to them that they will still be able to fulfill this mission that he's given them. Right? Like, even though childbearing now is marked with pain, look again at verse 16. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Right? There's this promise that, that you will be able to fill the earth. And in verse 17 and 18, right, in pain, you shall eat of the ground. 
Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. There's this promise of provision and of, of our ability to still continue at this task, even in the midst of it being frustrated. And the deepest promise is in verse 16. This promise that, that this condition will not last. That's what verse 16 is, or verse 15, sorry. Uh, verse 15 is this first like hint of good news, the hint of gospel that we get. That God says, this is not the end of the story, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to put hatred, enmity, between my people, Adam and Eve, and between their enemy. And one day one will come, a line of, of my people, an offspring will come who will crush the head of the snake, even as the snake bruises his heel. And we believe that that person has come in Jesus Christ, that he is of the, the line of Adam and Eve, right? He's the descendant of the woman who at the cross is struck on the heel, right? He, he takes this like poison into himself, but in so doing, he crushes the head of the serpent. And because he's done that, because he has borne the curse for us, he's able to bring us back into the garden. You see, we can't get back into the garden on our own, but we can be brought in. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, right? Paul starts off with the bad news. You were dead, right? Death is a result of the fall. And then in verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This will not be forever. This is not the way that things were made to be. But it's good that they are right now because if things did satisfy us here and now, we wouldn't look towards the one who can raise us from the dead. Right? There's a crack in everything. And so let that, like, let yourself be disillusioned by relationships and, and by, like, pleasure and by achievement and by all the things that we seek to find our fulfillment in so that we might go the next step further and see the God behind all those things. He's calling us to himself. And even though we can't get back into the garden, he has come seeking us to bring us back in. Put your trust in him. Let's pray.